This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with internationally best-selling author Johan Hari. Johan is in the country and joined me live for part two of our conversation on his book, Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention. Johan discusses the crisis of attention in children and adults, how big tech saps our ability to focus, and how environmental factors like pollution and chemicals can deeply affect our ability to focus. This interview is a companion to the first interview on Stolen Focus, which was aired in March this year. It's available on the Uncommon Sense podcast. I am absolutely excited, delighted to welcome back onto the show, Johan Hari. And I know many people listening are also excited and delighted because they've told me so when they found out that he would be appearing today. So it's really great to have him on the show. And in this situation, he's actually live because he's here in Australia talking about his book, Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention. And I know that he's um, appearing at the Sydney Writers' Festival. He's been doing some interviews and really getting out and about. So it sounds like Johan's dream of coming back to Australia from our last conversation in March has come true. (laughs) So it's uh, really lovely to welcome Johan back onto the show, internationally best-selling author. Um, And thank you so much, Johan, for coming on. Uh, It's always a joy to talk to you, Amy. I'm so happy to be here and I'm so happy that I realised the other day I... I, um, I accidentally did a terrible thing. I quoted Scott Morrison. I just like, you put your hands, oh, how great is Australia? Like, oh, no, look at that. That's what so exactly, you never want to accidentally quote Scott Morrison. But oh gosh! You know. Well, at least you kn- at least you realised your faux pas, because many international exactly. people wouldn't have noticed. <laughs> I would like to apologise to all the people of Australia for my error. I will never make it again. Yeah, just don't repeat that on Q and A, and you'll be all right. <laughs> Well, we have spoken about your past books, which I wanted to let everyone know about. Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs, and also Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. And as I mentioned, we had had a a chat on Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention, earlier this year. And because this book is just packed with ideas and research, we didn't get to all of it. And I know this happens with pretty much every book I cover, but I really felt like I got to the end of that and was desperate to cover these other topics. So I'm so excited that we will get to do that. But for those who didn't even get to hear that first interview, and even the people who did, I know that they'll love to hear about Stolen Focus in general and and some of the topics that we did get to cover because it affects everyone's lives so greatly. And I guess I was reflecting on how far or how little I've come since our chat in March (laughs) because I was thinking, "Mm, have I improved with my focus since I spoke to Johan? I should probably do a check-in. And uh, my mobile checked my screen time and said it had continually been decreasing, which I guess is a good thing. Oh. Yeah, so you've made an impact. And I think I'm now down to about <laughs> four hours of mobile time a day, which is still not great, but it's slightly not below the terrible. Average, slightly below average. Not, yeah. Not bad, yeah. It could be. With, with someone who's like addicted to Twitter because of radio and and all of these other problems, I felt like it was progress for me. But I'm definitely not happy 
with that. Although I think many people listening will notice that I've not been great with social media for this show. So it's really Johan's influence, everyone, and it's not my fault. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I I wanted to know how you've been going with it because I know we also checked in on you and how you'd been traveling with your screen time and your ability to engage in deeper focus. How are you doing with it? You know, I have so many like barriers and blocks between me and the things that ruin attention. Obviously, one of the reasons I wrote the book is because, you know, like we talked about before, Amy, I just realized that every year that passed, it felt like things that require deep focus that are so important to me, like reading books, having proper long conversations, watching films, were just getting more and more like kind of running up a down escalator, you know, they were just getting harder and harder. Obviously, I could see this happening to huge numbers of people around me. The average office worker now focuses on any one task for only three minutes. For every one child who was identified with serious attention problems when I was seven years old, there's now a hundred children who've been identified with that problem. So obviously, I went on this big journey for the book all over the world from here in Melbourne to Miami to Moscow to interview over 200 of the leading experts on attention and focus to find out why this is happening to us and most importantly what we can do about it and I learned that there's actually scientific evidence for 12 factors that can make your attention better or can make your attention worse and loads of the factors that can make your attention worse have been going through the roof they're not just um some of them are aspects in our technology but many of them go way beyond it so for example today I am like uh, so I've put lots of barriers between me and some of the technological uh, some of the technology aspects of this uh, that we can talk about. So if I think about some of the aspects that are playing out, so I flew to Australia four days ago, five, maybe five days ago. Uh, as you can tell from the fact that I don't even know how many days I've been here, I'm <laughs> jet lagged and disoriented, and I'm sleeping really badly. Mm. And um, the crisis in sleep is one of the biggest drivers of the attention crisis. You know, we sleep 20% less than we did a century ago. Children sleep 85 minutes left a night than they did a century ago. So there's been just a huge crisis in sleep. We can talk more about that and the evidence base because it's really important. So sleep is screwing my attention in the last few days. I've been eating appallingly. I just can't eat healthily when I travel. I don't, I don't eat healthily that often, but um, anyway, I don't want to have like some kind of virtuous person, even the best of circumstances, but... And, and there's a lot of evidence that the way we eat is harming our ability to focus and pay attention. We can talk more about that. That was one of the 12 factors that most surprised me, actually. So I think probably that combination of bad sleep, bad food, I'd, I'd say my attention is not great uh, in the last few days. But overall, based on things I learned in Stolen Focus, it's got a lot better. But so much of what I write about in the book is, you know, for all of the 12 factors that are harming our focus and attention... I think there's two levels at which we've got to deal with them. I think of them as defense and offense. So there are loads of things that we should, we've got to do and can do as individuals to protect ourselves and our children from these factors that are harming our attention. But the truth is, I'm passionately in favor of those individual changes. I've tried to make them myself. Obviously, I've relapsed a bit in the last few days with some of them. But at the moment, it's like someone is pouring itching powder over us all day. And then leaning forward and going, you know what, mate, um, you might want to learn how to meditate, then you wouldn't scratch so much. And you mm. want to go, well, yeah, I'll learn to meditate, but that's really good. But you need to stop pouring itching powder over me all day. 
So we've actually got to go on offense against the factors that are doing this to us, from the food industry to big tech to the way our workplaces function to the way our schools work at the moment, which are really harming kids' attention. Well, it's not the fault of any teachers who generally don't like the system that our politicians have built. So, yeah, I think there's um, a whole array of things going on. So it's thinking about my own attention, but it's also I can improve my attention to a significant degree, but equally the environment is systematically undermining your attention. There's only so far individual action can go. That's why we've got to have collective action to deal with those factors. Yeah, and that's what I love about this book is it's not like all those self-help books out there that are just saying it's on you to change your life. You know, those kind of typically American books that seem to say, you know, Mm. you can become a millionaire in 10 seconds if you just do these things and be like every other hardworking person who's a millionaire. It makes something that's very complex seem really easy and just all about your actions. And, of course, we should take responsibility for our actions. But as you say, it's so much more complex than that. Yeah, I was just thinking it's like telling a chronically unwell person, have you tried yoga? You know, it's like there are so so many other factors beyond their control. Doing yoga is not going to fix it. You're totally right. There's this great concept that I write about in the book called from a, a wonderful historian who sadly died recently called Lauren Berland. And the, the concept is cruel optimism. So cruel optimism is where you take something with really big social causes like and psychological causes like depression, attention problems, obesity, and you go, great news. I've got the solution for you. You can be free of this problem. Just use this meditation app for 10 minutes a day. All these attention crises are going to go away as if using a meditation app undoes the fact that we're constantly exposed to technology that is specifically designed by some of the cleverest people in the world to hack and invade our attention, as if it undermines the fact that we're exposed to food that is systematically undermining our attention, as if it undermines, as if it undoes the fact that our bosses can text us at any time of the day or night or email us, and we're meant to answer. You can see how the reason it's called cruel optimism is because it sounds like optimism, Right. You're offering the person a solution, but it's actually cruel because A, most people will not be able to do those things, right? Or B, even if they do, it won't solve the problem. And by the way, I'm not against meditation apps, right? I'm not against small changes. They are all good. I talk about lots of small changes in style and focus that I think we should make. But on their own, they're not going to solve the problem. But the reason it's cruel is because if you tell people that the answer is something really small, and they try the small thing and it doesn't work and it won't for most of them, although it might help a bit, Mm. they'll then think, oh, there's something wrong with me, right? Because, uh, you know, what's wrong with me? I did the thing you're meant to do. And look, I I still can't pay attention. I still can't stop eating or whatever the problem might be. Now, the alternative, uh, by the way, a great example of cruel optimism, my friend Ronald Purser, who you should totally interview, Amy, remind me, I'll, I'll give you an mm-hmm. email intro to him, you'd love him. He wrote a fantastic book called Mindfulness about, he's in favor of mindfulness like me, but it, the, the commercialization and kind of uh, crass uses of, of mindfulness. But there was, I forget the name of it, but it was an American company mm-hmm. where they threw everyone off their health care and then gave them free mindfulness lessons, which is like the perfect <laughs> illustration of this. It's like, oh, yeah, we're not going to give you insulin. But don't worry, just meditate, you'll be fine, right? And okay, that's a very extreme example, but yeah. um, it's really important to stress, the alternative to cruel optimism, and I know you, you strongly agree with this as well, Amy, the alternative to cruel optimism is not pessimism. 
The alternative to cruel optimism is authentic optimism, which is where you propose solutions that match the scale of the problem, right? Mm. Um, and I know that can sound a bit kind of fancy. So I'll, I'll give, I'll give a, if it's okay, I'll give a very concrete example of one yeah. of the, the kind of solutions that I think is big enough to match some of the scale of the problem. So, and this is one of many that I talk about in Stolen Focus. So in France, in 2018, they had a huge crisis of what they called le burnout, which I don't think I need to translate. And the French government was hugely pressured by labor unions, really important to stress. They would never have done this if labor unions hadn't been very organized and active in, in France. But the labor unions said, look, we've got, this is a real problem. And they pressured the government. And so the government set up an uh, inquiry led by a guy called Bruno Metling, who was the head of their biggest telecoms company, Orange, to figure out what the hell's going on. Why is everyone so burned out? And he discovered one of the key reasons was that in France, 40% of French workers felt they could never, when they were awake, stop checking, checking their email or phone, or phone calls or texts because their boss could just message them at any time of the day or night. And if they didn't answer, they'd be in trouble, right? Yeah. So I can give those people all the lovely self-help advice in the world, right? They can't do it, right? If your job depends on you being constantly responsive, um, you can't do those things. It becomes like a taunt. It's like going up to a homeless person and going, do you know what will make you feel better, mate? Uh, have you considered going into that fancy restaurant over there and having a nice steak? It's like, right, but I can't do that. Don't tell me to do something I can't do. So the French government again under pressure from labor unions, this inquiry recommended and the French government implemented that they changed the law. And they introduced a very simple legal right. It's called the right to disconnect. It just says every worker has, A, your work hours have to be stipulated clearly in your contract. And B, when your work hours are over, you have the legal right to not look at your phone or check your email. So when I went to France just before the plague began, I interviewed people there you know, Rent-A-Kill, the pest control company, had just been fined 70,000 euros for getting one of their workers, for criticizing one of their workers for not answering his email an hour after he left work. Now, you wow. can see how, to me, that's an example of authentic optimism. Just mm. saying, use this meditation app 10 minutes, it's not going to solve the problem, right? Again, stress again, I'm not against meditation apps. I think they're quite good. I actually use one myself. But that's not going to solve the problem. Saying, you know what? You want to spend time with your kids? You want to be able to have a bath? You want to lie in the bath and read a book? Okay, let's, let's get it. And we remember this, Amy. When we were kids, the only people who were on call were doctors, doctors and yeah. the prime minister. Even doctors weren't on call all the time, mm, right? And they were so paid we to be on call. <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah. Got, exactly, that was part of the... So you see how, how quickly that change has happened and in some ways how we take it for granted. We just sort of think, oh, well, that's... That's just how it works, right? But this is, this is a completely inhuman and unacceptable change that we should not tolerate and do not have to tolerate, right? Yeah, for sure. No, it's so true. I, I did reflect on that as well. You know, when you think about the quote-unquote good old days, the things that, for example, millennials or 90s, 80s, 90s kids like myself did, you know, we only eventually got mobile phones at the end of high school a lot of us. And yeah. so we would just wait by the landline phone if we were expecting a call or, you know, have to call <laughs> someone else's house and talk to their parents to then talk to the person we wanted to talk to. You know, there was no texting. Yeah, 
Well, well, and if you t- if you arranged to meet someone and they weren't there, you just had to go home. I remember that? Like, like oh, that's not it. But then, or you rang their mum from a, a phone box. And look, totally. there's lots of good things about the technology. I'm, I'm finding it a bit difficult to think about 90s nostalgia because I'm in Melbourne and Neighbours has just ended and I'm a bit traumatised. Oh. So I, feel like I wanted to try and escape and go to Ramsey Street while I'm here, but I'm not sure we're going to have gonna have time. But the... Um, but no, the, the, so many changes happen so fast. Many of them are hugely positive. I mm. think about, you know, gay kids, for example, I'm gay. How much easier it is for gay kids to find each other now than it was, you know, when, when I was a, a teenager. There's loads of really positive changes. But it's yeah. interesting, isn't it? Because the way big tech want us to frame this debate is are you pro-tech or are you anti-tech? Mm. And, of course, if you hear that, you're just like, oh, well, I guess I must be pro-tech because I'm not going to convert and join the Amish, right? Yeah. No disrespect to any Amish people who are cheating and listening to this show. But the, you know, but that's not the debate, right? Yeah. The debate is not are you pro-tech or are you anti-tech. The debate is what tech do we want, designed by who, working in whose interests, right? At the moment, we have tech that is designed to work for the billionaires, a tiny handful of billionaires, which is explicitly designed to hack and invade our attention because the longer we scroll, the more ads we see, the more, the more they learn about us, the more money they make, right? But this technology doesn't have to work that way. There are plenty of, um, the, as, as I learned in Silicon Valley, from interviewing loads of people there who designed key aspects of the world in which we live, uh, we could have all this technology and have it designed to work for us, not against us, right? I can talk more about that, but with, with all of the 12 factors that I write about in Stolen Focus, there's so it doesn't have to be this way. And I, I think a lot about, I think probably the single most impressive person I met in the, one of the two most impressive people I met working on Stolen Focus, a guy called Dr. James Williams. Actually, I feel a bit cruel now. It's like picking your favorite child. <laughs> so many amazing people. But, you know, I mean, and he said to me, you know, the axe existed for 1.4 million years before anyone thought to put a handle on it. The entire internet has existed for less than 10,000 days, right? Mm. We can fix this stuff if we want to. It's not that hard, right? On the scale of human challenges that humans have faced before us, you know, it's a big challenge. It's a huge crisis that we're in, a detention of focus. But there are practical solutions and they can be achieved. It's not some, you know, oh, no, we're we're living in the matrix and we're trapped. It's not like that. We can deal with this, but we are going to have to understand what's actually happening to us and stop blaming ourselves because this is the other trap of cruel optimism, right? is that we think of all these problems as purely individual, right? If you can't focus, if your kid can't focus, you think, well, what's wrong with me? What's, what's wrong with him? We're stuck in, and, and it's one of the reasons why I'm not a self-help writer, although I'd like to think people could read my, and indeed do read my books for some individual advice. Because to me, at its worst, what self-help is, is it's training people to individually adjust unacceptable, morally unjust social systems. Whereas what I want to do is, okay, let's survive as best we can in these unjust systems, but most importantly, let's overthrow these unjust systems. Let's get rid of them, right? Let's not yeah. tolerate it. Think about, you could have taken a, think about gay people in the 1930s, right? You could have taken a self-help approach to the problems of homophobia in the 1930s, right? Okay, so you have to live in secret, so you can't live with the person you love, I'm going to give you personal advice about how to cope with that terrible situation, right? Now, 
again, I wouldn't be against giving personal advice to a gay person in the 1930s, but the best personal advice you could have given is you've got to form a movement and you've got to change these laws, right? Or think mm. about another example that a lot of people listening will remember. So uh, it's close to my heart because my mother, my mother worked in, she's retired now, but my mother's job was to work in centres for survivors of domestic violence for years. Many years, she did some amazing work there. So in the 70s, the 60s and the 70s, huge numbers of women were being violently abused by their partners and they would go to the doctor. It was very rare people went to the police because the police did not, although it was a crime, the police basically did nothing when they were told about domestic violence. So what would often happen is women would go to their doctors and the doctors would be told, oh, you've got a nervous disorder and they were given Valium, right? Now, those women, of course there were people, I'm not against Valium, but what those women needed was not to be told they had a nervous disorder and been valiant. They needed shelters for domestic violence. They needed political action to get the police to actually stop violent men rather than be on their side. They needed, and of course, we still need those reforms, although we've come, we're somewhat better than we were. We still have a lot further to go. So you can see again how a lot of self-help, what it does is it depoliticizes and individualizes what are political problems, Right which is why it's so important to me to never write a book like that. Like, that would be my mm. idea of hell if, I, mm-hmm. if people come up to me and go, you know, one of the things that's so nice, that one of the most pleasing bits of feedback I get is when people say to me, I thought there was something wrong with me, but then I realised there was something wrong with the world, right? So, <laughs> yes, that's what I wanted yes. to say, right? Yeah. Yeah, and let's close out that topic of big tech because there were a couple of things I didn't get to address with you last time. And, you know, you were talking there about how we're not either pro-tech or anti-tech. We need to just change the tech to make it work for us. And throughout the couple of chapters where you focus in depth on big tech, you look at social media as an example and think of the ways and find out ways that the system could be designed differently. And, you know, there are things like disabling infinite scroll because infinite scroll actually didn't exist on things like Twitter and Instagram previously. Also batching notifications. So you only got them once a day if you opted to batch them together to actually have Facebook enforce screen time if you wanted to limit the number of minutes you did it and not just rely on the the Apple screen time app to do that for you. But the other thing that came up for me recently, and I wondered if you had thoughts on this, was also we're seeing this design, this algorithm design in real time with Instagram now trying to copy TikTok and trying to force people, so, you know, influencers, people who do paid promotions, forcing them to do videos and reels so that that content is seen by the people who follow them and basically ensuring that if they ever posted a post that was just a still photograph, that less people would see it and engage with it. I mean, that's something that so many people have picked up on that we've seen people talk about the the value of photography and of the still image as opposed to the moving image. And it might sound a little bit wanky to say that, but it is true. Like uh, my experience now on Instagram is constant shock every time there's another video that's got this jarring loud noise when all I wanted was just to look at the photographs that my friends were posting up. And I just wondered if you had thoughts on that, you know, this clear change and clear manipulation of the monetary factors that play into Instagram. Yeah, people are becoming more conscious of the algorithmic uh, manipulation. And I think what would most help is people to understand why they're doing that. Because a lot of people are just like, well, Instagram's made this dumb choice, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I 
Etta, who, who formerly known as Facebook, who own Instagram, which has never been allowed, by the way. But the, yeah. So I think to understand it, it helps to understand the underlying mechanism. And I learned about this from people who've been at the heart of these companies. So anyone listening, please don't do this. But if you opened Instagram or TikTok or Facebook or Twitter now, those companies immediately start to make money out of you in two ways. The first one is really obvious. You see ads. Okay, no one listening needs me to explain that. The second way is much more important. Everything you do on those apps, everything you say, is scanned and sorted by their artificial intelligence algorithms to figure out who you are and particularly to figure out the weaknesses in your attention for a very simple reason. The longer you scroll, the more money they make. Every time you close the app, their revenue stream disappears, right? So the longer you scroll, the more ads you see, the more information they learn about you to sell to advertisers, the more information they learn about you to figure out what the weaknesses in your attention are, right? It's really that simple. And I remember... It kept being explained to me in Silicon Valley. That's what we do, right? We figure out how to keep you scrolling. And I realized how kind of innocent I had been. I was just like, well, it can't be that simple. There must be more going on. And they would always look at me like I was a sort of maiden aunt in an 1850s Jane Austen novel who <laughs> just discovered what thinking was. Like, 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 like I'd never, like, no, you know, like, what, how did you think it worked, right? And just like the head of KFC, all he cares about in his professional capacity is how much KFC did you eat today? How big was the bucket you bought? All these companies care about is how often did you pick up your phone and how long did you scroll? So all of this genius, all of this AI, all this incredible intelligence in Silicon Valley is geared towards this really this one very simple goal. And they are unbelievably good at it. It's my friend Tristan Harris, who is at the heart of Google and is now... I think, leading the world and exposing this stuff, said to me, you know, you can, in fact, he said it when he testified before the Senate, you know, you can try having self-control, but every time you do, there's 10,000 really clever engineers on the other side of the screen trying to stop you from exercising your self-control, which is why, of course, there are things we should do as individuals, and I do them, and I talk about them a lot in Stolen Focus, my book. But the main thing we've got to do is take on these forces, Right. It's not a force of nature that they're allowed to do that. It's because we allow them to. So absolutely, we can stop and restrain them from doing that through through regulation. I talk about specifically how, but in the book, but the technology exists to do that, right? My friends in Silicon Valley could design it tomorrow. It's not that hard. We could have the technology designed to serve us and our goals instead of serving them and their goals, right? At the moment... These technologies are designed to undermine your attention. They are really good at it, right? Yeah. Um, but they could be designed to connect you with other people offline, to encourage you to meet people offline. Because one of the things we've learned in the last two years is we feel good when we sit with actual people and look into their eyes. And we feel terrible when we sit just staring at screens all day. If, you know, if interacting through screens met our deeper needs as human beings... We would all have been completely fine in the last two years. Instead, I have never heard anyone say the sentence, hooray, another Zoom call. (laughs) Never. (laughs) I don't think anyone listening has ever heard anyone say that, right? Oh, Um, God. You can see how by constantly prompting us to interact with the world through screens, 
to interrupt us, and indeed when we're on those screens to have the most attention-damaging ways of conducting themselves. So that's why Instagram's doing it, right? Instagram, every single person who works at Instagram on the technologies that interface with the, with the users are given metrics. And the metric is how often did the user pick up their phone? How often did they open Instagram? How long did they scroll? Right, that's it. Yeah. If you work for Instagram, that's the basis on which your work is judged. So you're absolutely right, Amy. People feel better when they look at still photographs in the main, right? Mm. It's calming. You feel good about it. Whereas a loud, jangly video, and I'm not against, obviously I'm not against video, and there's a lot of times I look at videos, but you, you can see that shift in Instagram has unsettled you. It's actually unsettled most people who use Instagram. Mm. But does it get them to scroll longer? Actually, it does, right? So... These things are not about making you feel good. They're not about enriching your life. That's not their goals. Now, they could be designed to be about that, but they're not, right? They're designed to keep you scrolling. So anything that keeps you scrolling, it will keep feeding to you, even if it makes you feel less good, but it's more compelling. Uh, And we all know that, right? Anyone think about if you've ever seen a car crash, it's not nice to see a car crash, but you stared at it, right? Because people might be listening and thinking, well, why would I look at something that didn't make me feel good? But actually, human evolution, a lot of the time we look at things that don't make us feel good. You certainly, if you're past a car crash on the motorway, you stared longer at the mangled wreck than you did at the pretty flowers on the other side of the street, right? So things can be designed to compel you without you liking them or feeling good about looking at them. Mm. And that's what's happening with Instagram now. Yeah, I must be the 1% of people who just switch off Instagram as soon as there are too many videos, but... I think the only videos yeah, I like yeah, watching well, that, 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 are the football ones. Uh, yeah, well, I will never understand sport of any kind. I'm just trying <laughs> to explain American football league to me yesterday. And it's like the, my, the only criteria by which I judge any sport is how hot are the men who take part in it. And uh, to be fair, on that basis, AFL is an excellent sport. Hell but yes. I will never, ever understand. Uh, I will never understand it. It's like it, it, there's a space in my brain that will never work, sadly. But at least you have a different way of appreciating it, Johan. So I'm okay with that. Exactly. That's totally fine. <laughs> exactly. Oh, if um, there are any AFL players listening to this yes. show, feel free to reach out to me. You can explain it to me over dinner. I'll be very happy. <laughs> yeah, and Johan would be happy to attend a game. I know that finals are coming up soon. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Anytime. Very yeah. Happy. Um, I love that. I'm, I, let me know if anything does come of that call out. <laughs> Now, Johan, I wanted to touch on a few of those other things you, you referenced at the start of our chat when we were thinking about issues like what you were saying, diet, which is an issue for you at the moment with all the travel you're doing, but also pollution and chemicals and the environmental factors that also are affecting our children. So there's, there's a little bit of overlap in some of those topics. But I thought I might just raise the chemicals one because there is just such an excellent chapter on this and it demonstrates the role of government and regulation in changing the world for the better. It's that system changing thing. It shouldn't just be up to us as individuals to try and limit our exposure to chemicals because there are a lot of things we have no control over. But as you did and discovered through your research, a lot of these researchers are very concerned because the research isn't being done before we're exposed to these chemicals. It's only sometimes being done after we've been exposed. You know, of all the causes that I learned about, all the 12 causes that are harming our attention and focus that I wrote about in Style Focus, this was the one that I knew least about going in. 
and was most surprised by. And I think, and I say this a bit cautiously, but I think a hundred years from now, when they look back on us, and they're like, God, people really struggled to focus and pay attention in that period. This might be the single biggest cause. So I'll give you an example. It's an amazing woman called Professor Barbara Marr at the University of Lancaster in Britain, who's done really pioneering work on this, with, along with scientists all over the world, about how exposure to air pollution affects the functioning of your brain. So let's say I'm, I'm in Melbourne at the moment. And let's say, you know, in Melbourne, in London, any major global city, as you walk around, you're breathing in a kind of um, toxic fog, right, for the air pollution. And so one of the things you're breathing in is iron. And so when you breathe in air pollution in any major city, that iron obviously goes in through your nose and goes straight to your brain. There is nothing in human evolution that prepared us for it iron hitting our brains, right? So we know there's pretty good evidence on this, but what that does is it causes brain inflammation. And if you live in a major city, it causes chronic brain inflammation because you're just, you're almost constantly exposed to it. And we know that chronic brain inflammation causes all sorts of problems. There was just a major study published, I think three weeks ago, maybe four weeks ago, that showed an extremely strong relationship between air pollution and dementia, for example, because you've got this chronic brain inflammation that goes on for years and years and years. The more polluted the area you live in, the more likely you are to develop dementia. Indeed, there's a study in Canada that just found literally the difference between living 10 metres from a polluted road and 50 metres from a polluted road made a huge difference in how likely you were to get dementia. But, but we also know this is affecting not just in the long term, but having short, there's somewhat less evidence on this, but we do have some early suggestive evidence that more short term, in the, in the short term, it also has terrible effects on your attention and focus. That's one aspect of it. There's another, uh, an amazing scientist named Professor Barbara Dimini, who is uh, one of the leading scientists in France. She won the Légion d'honneur, the, the highest civilian honour in France, for her scientific work on... Um, the ways that the chemicals that we're exposed to that are causing endocrine disruption, which is really important for brain formation in, in the womb. And as she put it to me, she said, it's not possible to have a normal brain today, right? Because we are exposed to so many historically unprecedented chemicals. And you're absolutely right about what we need to do about that. Because at the moment, so you think about how drugs work, medical drugs. So if I think I've invented a medical drug, don't worry about I think we just lost Johan. I'm going to bring him back just a minute, everyone. I think it'll be pretty easy and quick to do this. I'm speaking to Johan Hari about stolen focus on uncommon sense here. And hopefully we get him back on. There you are, Johan. Sorry you just dropped off. No problem. It was no doubt some kind of pollution caused... (laughs) That's what I was going to say. I'm like, I'm sure Melbourne has good signal. It must be air pollution. (laughs) (laughs) The... If you think about how medical drugs work, right? So someone, a company comes up with a drug they think can treat a problem. They have to apply to a regulator. They have to demonstrate that it works in lots of clinical trials. They have to go through an extensive process, quite rightly, before that drug becomes something that your doctor can prescribe to you or you can buy in the pharmacy. With industrial chemicals, we don't have that process at all. Mm. If a company comes up with a, a new... Uh, so think about uh, uh, um, uh, what's it called BPA, which is used to coat cans. So I just drank a Coke Zero. There was BPA on that can, right? 
Now, we know that exposure to BPA, um, you can't do human trials on it for obvious reasons, but we know that when monkeys are exposed to BPA, they're significantly more likely to develop cognitive problems, right? Now, the way it works with any chemical pollutant, and there's a great guy called Professor Bruce Lanfear who's done a lot of work on this, and then I recommend people look. He, he, he runs a really good group called Little Things Matter. I think it's just littlethingsmatter.ca that campaigns on this. But he explains. So the way it works is, basically, you can release whatever chemical you want, and then the tiny numbers of very underfunded public scientists then have to scramble to figure out whether the chemical harms people. And then if it does, they have to prove it again and again and again before that chemical gets taken out of sale. Mm. And it takes a long time to do that. That is not how the system should work, right? No. We should have a system where, like drugs, like medical drugs, where you have to demonstrate something is safe before it starts being used by everyone. Not, well, let's just try it out on the entire human population and see what happens, right, which is effectively what happens now. Totally. And these are chemicals like pesticides, which would be on our foods, plasticizers, flame retardants, cosmetics we put on our face, under our arms, on our skin, in our hair, on our scalp. It's kind of shocking to hear that, but also that the EU at least is is taking more steps than countries like Australia and the United States on this. So it's great to see yeah. some of the research that you lay out in that chapter, and I hope people can check it out and get a better sense of what that chapter is what, all about. Why me? Yeah, Amy, even think about another think about another example. Because mm. um, to be honest, until I learned about this research, because whenever people talked about this stuff, I thought they were being a bit paranoid. Like I was like, come on now, you know, yeah. I, like I wasn't that. This was not my subject, right? Yeah. So it was quite shocking to really dispassionately, actually quite skeptically look at the evidence and be kind of persuaded. But it's interesting what you're saying about, you know, the EU taking action. There's a really interesting example on this, which has not happened in Australia or the United States. There was a study in Southampton in Britain in 2007. So they've got 198 uh, children and they split them into two groups. And the first group was just given water to drink. And the second group was given water laced with lots of the common flavorings and additives that are found in all sorts of things that we eat all the time, M&Ms, that kind of thing. Mm. And then the kids were monitored. And the kids that drank the flavorings and preservatives were significantly more likely to become manic, to struggle with attention. And so in the wake of that, and there there were studies that replicated it, the EU just banned a lot of these colorings. It's why, by the way, we'll check this out. Next time you go to Europe, bring some Australian M&Ms to Britain and open the two packets to each other. You'll see they look quite different. The Australian ones are much brighter mm. because they're using, they're using these things that have been banned. In, in Australia, you're still allowed to use things that were banned in Britain and, and indeed across the entire EU. I was about to say, I know Britain is no longer part of the EU, so I apologize for the horror of that. Uh, so <laughs> Britain and the EU, you know how to say, rather than just yeah. the EU. But, um, but yeah, so you can see, again, now that's not something, you know, to some degree you can protect yourself, okay? You can, you know, if you can walk home that's not on a busy and polluted road, if you can walk somewhere nicer, that's better. But the truth is, of all the 12 factors that I write about in Style and Focus, you know, most of them... There are individual things you can do and there are collective things you can do. With the pollution one, it's not really... I mean, Professor Domini said you basically can't escape this stuff if you live in the modern world. 
unless we have political action to actually deal with it, right? Yeah. There are sort of some limited individual actions. You can wear a mask, you can wear, you know, a, a gas mask, you can, uh, not a gas mask, you know what I mean, a pollution mask. Mm-hmm. Um, like Respirator. Like people do in Beijing. Yeah. Yeah. You can, um, you know, you can be careful about the food you eat. There, there are things you can do, but we've actually got to deal with it at a collective social level. And it really underscored to me, oh, this, this is why I kind of slightly, uh, it's funny, I'm just in Melbourne and I just walked past some fantastic, um, a few hours ago, there's some people protesting outside the parliament here, some Extinction Rebellion people protesting against logging, and I was having a, a chat with them. And I, and I slightly, only slightly jokingly in the book, I say, we need an attention rebellion, right? Yeah. Um, because we need to, I mean, clearly we need Extinction Rebellion massively, but we need an attention rebellion. We need to take on these big, forces that are doing this to us, right? We shouldn't be passively accepting this. We don't have to tolerate that our children's brains are being harmed, that our own ability to think deeply and focus is being undermined. We don't have to tolerate this. It's not acceptable. It's not, it's not part of nature. It's not just something that was handed down by divine forces. These are decisions by a small number of humans and the rest of us who are being harmed by them can overwhelm those humans and stop them. And by the way, they'll be better off too. Right? It's funny, mm. but we're doing it to protect them as much as for ourselves. We're all winners when we do that. I mean, yeah. they'll have slightly less money, but, you know, I'm not worried about Mark Zuckerberg's income. Right? He'll be oh, okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> He'll yeah. definitely be fine. To close out this discussion, Johan, you mentioned their kids. And I think that that's probably a big motivating factor for anyone listening if they have kids or even if they're godparents or, you know, aunties or uncles, is that a lot of us were very fortunate to not have as much of these environmental factors affecting our brains, affecting our attention when we were growing up. And I think it's really puts a lot of pressure on the mental health of children now to have all this stimulation as you point out in a number of these chapters, the incidence of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder among children has risen by a huge amount across the world in the last couple of decades. And it's a big concern of a number of parents. And I know that there's a bit of overlap as well between your book Lost Connections and this one, Stolen Focus, in that regard, in the sense that we need these human connections and less screen time. We need to be able to look after our kids to ensure that they have that developmental trajectory that isn't traumatizing, that doesn't set them on a path of destruction or, you know, affects their ability to learn. And I just wondered if you had any reflections on that, on the the impact of this issue, especially on younger people at the moment and the parents who I know who are exceptionally concerned and all of their relatives and friends. Yeah, when you when you started talking about children, then you said a lot of us are very fortunate. I thought you'd say a lot of us are very fortunate to not have children. Yeah, well, <laughs> that too. Um, <laughs> I just got a puppy, and now I'm um, totally put off kids for the only fact that there's a lot of poo and pee and no sleep. It's so true. It's so true. Yeah. Um, no, it was it was the loves of the young people in my life that actually inspired me most to write Stolen Focus. And I remember, mm. you know, one of the absolute heroes of the book. Is an amazing woman called Lenore Skenazi, who I, who I love. And Lenore, Lenore grew up in a suburb of Chicago in the 1960s. And from when she was five years old, every morning she left home on her own and walked to school. It was about 15 minutes away. She would generally bump into all the other kids who walked to school because ask your parents in the 1960s, all children walked to school on their own, right? Yeah. Everywhere in the world. By the time Lenore was a parent in the 1990s, that had ended. 
right? In fact, mm. you're meant to deliver your child to the gate and wait and watch them walk through the door. And then you're meant to be there to collect them at the end of the day. When Lenore got to the end of the day, when she was a kid, she used to just leave school on her own and wander around the neighborhood with her friends for a few hours, just playing freely. And then they would go home when they were hungry, right? And Lenore was really kind of uncomfortable with this change. And she began to learn a lot about the science of this. And it turns out that childhood we've lost contains a huge number of things that are so important for our ability to focus and pay attention. When children play freely without adults standing over them, enforcing the rules, telling them what to do, that's how they learn to cope with anxiety, right? You develop a sense of being competent because you face small challenges. You climb the tree, you go a bit too high, you get anxious, but you realize you didn't die. You know, all the sort of normal challenges that come when children play with each other. There's, there's just so many things that happen during free play that boost children's attention. Even something as simple as exercise, physically running around, is, as Professor Joel Nigg, one of the leading experts on children's attention problems in the US, told me, you know, when kids run around, they develop more brain connections, their attention gets better. They, they learn to deal with anxiety, they gain a sense of competence. If you're just anxious, you don't feel you're competent at anything, that ruins your attention. And all that, in the space of one generation, we took all that away from our children, right? Even before COVID, when, of course, it disappeared completely, although, frankly, it almost disappeared completely before COVID. Only 10% of American children ever played outdoors before COVID, right, without an adult supervising them. So Lenore, one of the reasons I love Lenore is she's not someone who just describes problems, she finds solutions. So Lenore... Set up, uh, runs a group, she actually set it up, but she took over a group called letgrow.org. I really recommend anyone who's a parent or grandparent or has kids they love in their lives, go to letgrow.org. So initially, Lenore thought the solution was just, oh, well, I'll just persuade parents to let their kids play outdoors. I'll just let my kid go out. And she quite quickly learned, if you're the only parent doing that, your kid gets scared, you look like a nut base. In fact, often people call the police. So what letgrow.org do is they go to whole areas, whole communities, whole schools, and persuade everyone to give their kids increasing levels of independence that build up to playing outdoors. And I think of all the conversations I had for the book, the most moving was with a kid in Long Island in a letgrow program who I interviewed before COVID. So he was a big, strapping 14-year-old boy, right, taller than me. And until this program had begun, he had never been allowed out of his house on his own literally never he wasn't even allowed to go for a run around the block i asked him why and he said oh my parents are scared of all these kidnappings he said this boy lived in a town in long island where the olive oil store is across the street from the french bakery and he had a level of fear that would be appropriate if he lived in ukraine right now right mm. and then this program began and the kids started to play outdoors and i said to him what did you do and he said oh at first we me and my friends we would play ball games and then he said, I'll have to get the photo, which he said this. He said, we, um, we started to go and play in the woods. And he leaned forward and he said, we were there even though we didn't have any cell phone reception in the woods. That's <laughs> like blinding revelation. And I said to him, what, what did you do in the woods? And he said, oh, we, we, we built a fort. And now we go and build other things. And as he described it, Maybe this sounds over the top, but it felt like watching a child come to life, right? And mm. I thought about how many children I know who never get to play outside, who never get to do anything, you know? But the only place they get to explore anything is on Fortnite. We can hardly be so surprised 
when they become obsessed with it. And, you know, Lenore was with me that day, and when that boy left, I remember she turned to me and said, think about all of human history. For all of human history, young people had to go out and they had to explore. They had to map the territory. They had to build things. They had to figure things out. And then in the space of one generation, we took all that away from them, right? It stunts their bodies. It stunts their minds. And then that boy, given a tiny little bit of freedom, what did he do? He went into the woods and he built a fort. This is so deep in nature, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think this is the same, you know, so many of the things I talk about in Stolen Focus, we've created an environment that's not working for our underlying human nature, right? It does lots of, there's loads of good things about the way we live now. I'm glad to be alive today. But many aspects of the way we live are not in alignment with our natures. And instead of trying to bash ourselves into living in ways that are unnatural to us, we should be adjusting the environment so it works for us, not against us. And there are loads of ways we can do that. I went to places that started to do it, from France yeah. to New Zealand. We absolutely can do this, but we have to stop blaming ourselves. It's not on you. It's not on your child. You're not weak. You're not broken. We need to actually solve the underlying problems here together. Couldn't agree more, Johan. And thank you for the rallying cry at the end. Uh, it's very, very uplifting and it also is very empowering, I think. It's been so, so fun to chat with you and that's an understatement. Oh. So I'm really, really happy to have spoken oh, with you. A, well, you always ask such brilliant questions, Amy, and it's always a joy to talk to you. So I'm, I'm so glad I hope you do it again soon. Oh, please, yes. And I hope you have a really beautiful oh, trip here and maybe run into an AFL footballer or two in Melbourne. Oh, my God. Hopefully my, hopefully my email inbox will now be full of all of them. Bing. I can't wait. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Thanks, they can steal Johan. my focus whenever they want. Hell yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks, Johan. Cheers, Amy. I've just been speaking with Johan Hari, internationally best-selling author. He is the author of Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention. He's also the author of a number of other books, including Chasing the Scream and Lost Connections. And you can listen to the first part of our interview about that book, Stolen Focus, which was from March up on the podcast, as well as the previous chats we've had about his books. If you're interested in those topics or just love Johan, I love both. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.